the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. We are here today for another session of uh, Chalcedon's Questions and Answers. I'm Martin Sorbetti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation, and I'm uh, looking forward to answering questions. We have some left over from last week, so we're going to uh, take the first few minutes, since we're starting a hair early, uh, and uh, getting caught up with that bookkeeping and uh, dealing with those questions. One question that was missed in the thread last week was uh, asked by Patricia Halliday. She asks, Could we apply the unity, not union doctrine, as Reverend Rashtuni taught in the numbers lessons, to the differences in sexes? So, first thing you have to know is what that uh, unity, not union doctrine is all about. And it is uh, discussed by Dr. Rashtuni in the numbers commentary. Uh, Patricia points out it's in the section on the census toward the end, the final page of the numbers commentary. And Dr. Rashtuni makes a distinction between unity, which is of the faith, unity in the faith, versus union, which is organizational. Uh, and he said, we tend to adopt the Roman view of uh, unity, of uh, rather union, as opposed to unity. And this favors putting the authority in the human realm. In other words, all the centralization comes to bear because now we have the human factor uh, coming forward, and not the divine factor. And consequently, when you operate in terms of this, you get this uh, huge uh, aggregation of power uh, in various institutions because they try to embody, if you will, uh, that that sense of union, put everything under one, one roof. As opposed to everything being under one God, uh, having diversity in unity, you have rather the, the notion that everything needs to be on the same level battlefield. Uh, and a lot of political philosophies do, in fact, try to level everything out to one common denominator. So there are a lot of aspects of this. It's kind of an extension of uh, the notion of the one and the many, the doctrine that goes back to Aristotle and that Dr. Rashtuni discussed at great length in his book by that title, The One and the Many. And in this instance, the question is, how do we apply this idea that unity, which is uh, unity under uh, an authority that's above us versus union, which is um, being tied together and connected to people at the same level. In other words, finding your you, you find union in the created realm with other people, but unity is under the faith in Christ. Uh, these are two different kinds of ways to unify. One is inherently humanistic, and the uh, because it premise is premised on humanistic values. And the other is premised on a common faith, like it says in Zechariah 14, you know, in there, that day shall the Lord be one and his name be one. In other words, the un unity is all around God. But you have all these different nations that find their, uh, that count him as God and Lord, etc., etc. So how does this apply to the question of the difference in the sexes? Uh, what we're, what I think Patricia is trying to drive at here is, should we be talking in terms of unity in the faith when we talk about, say, uh, male and female, or should we be trying to find some uh, unification here at the creaturely level versus at the level of the Creator? And that's what we're really talking about. Is the Creator in charge of the of what unifies and pulls us together, or is our, uh, our atoms and our molecules and our cells the determining factor, uh, and, our, and our wills, for that matter? So, uh, I think the answer is that in the doctrine of the one and the many, uh, where we have equal ultimacy of the two things, uh, we would say yes, we do want to apply that idea of uh, unity in the faith as opposed to union organizationally. Uh, and that means that there can be diversity of uh, various functions inside a family. Uh, and they're premised on uh, God's guidance and his wisdom and his purpose and his patterns, if you will. 
Uh, sometimes those, those are misunderstood and become whipping, uh, well, literal whips, if you will, uh, for tyranny. Tyranny always is lawless domination. We say, see this over and over again, of course. So uh, that balance needs to be found, and it's a balance that uh, I think the scriptures supply uh, as long as we take every jot and tittle into effect, and that's what we, what we normally fall down. We uh, cherry pick. We pick this scripture here and say, ah, this is the hammer I can use to uh, affect uh, something over here in this area. And that's where the problem arises. Uh, and it's a serious problem because the law is intended for liberty, and when it's used rather uh, to enslave uh, and to deprecate and things in this order, uh, we lose the full benefit of what we were created to do. And this is true for the, for male and female as well, in their respective roles and the roles that they do together in uh, unity under the faith. And so uh, a marriage should, in fact, be a unity uh, that they're on the same. And I said this last week, if you recall the discussion, I said when uh, a man and a woman are on the same trajectory, working for the same kingdom, uh, those parallel paths can easily coalesce and they be, the sum is greater than the, uh, well, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, as the saying goes. So I think that answers uh, at least preliminarily the question that Patricia put forward. I believe there's applicability, and it's worthwhile uh, pursuing it. And uh, one of the benefits of pursuing it is to avoid uh, some extremes, particularly the tyranny in the, the marital state that uh, seems to mark a lot of misuse of Scripture, and that's been dominant certainly in the last couple of decades. Another question, these questions came in from uh, the website as opposed to uh, during the Facebook thread. I'm going to actually deal with them in reverse order. Question. In the absence of judges at the city gates to assist, how does one who wishes to make restitution come up with a truly biblical application? What if he or she can't locate the person to whom restitution is required? Now, actually, the good news is that that last question is covered in Scripture. It's covered in Numbers 5, verse 8. And I uh, actually have a slide on this topic uh, when I talk about the uh, the marvelous things in God's law uh, in various lectures I've given over the last few years. Numbers 5.8 says that if you cannot find someone to, uh, for example, if the person that needed the restitution is gone, then you would find an heir. But if you cannot find an heir, uh, or there's some other reason that you cannot give restitution, he says, then the restitution must go to the Lord. And you can give it to the priest, if you will, and then the priest will go see th through it. The basic premise is that the, the way that we, the thing in which you benefited from some kind of fraud, inadvertent or intentional, that those proceeds, that enrichment must not stay with you. You must give it up. It needs to be restituted to the victim that you victimized, in whichever way it is. Uh, or if you cannot find someone, or the victim says, "No, nah, I'm going to forgive you for that," you still cannot keep. Say you stole a thousand dollars and they decided to forgive you for the thousand this thousand can't stay with you actually you have to pay two thousand uh double the restitution and if they refuse to accept it and the church says well you need to honor this person forgiving the debt and they cannot stay with you you have to then provide it to uh, god instead because what happens when you are enriched by something that doesn't belong to you then a new principle is at work in your household uh, this is discussed in uh, other passages of scripture uh, Haggai 2.11 uh, and other passages where the timber and the beam cry out to each other, woe you know, to the one person who's building their house on, um, on, on, on blood and things on this order, uh, unrighteous things. And in Micah 6, the question is asked, do you have uh, treasures of wickedness in your house? Are they there? And if so, this is bad news for you. So consequently, uh, the Bible provides for a escape hatch, a relief valve. If someone's not going to accept the restitution or you can't find the party to restitute for whatever reason they're gone, they can't, can't track them down, then the restitution must go to the Lord. And, and that way, things are made right. And you're made right, too, because you no longer have that thing sitting there on the shelf for the benefit of the, the, the theft, the thing that needed restitution, sitting there in your house, consuming it. It's like a burning fire in the back of the, the home, tearing it down. This is what Micah 6 talks about, verses 8 through 16. Uh, it talks about the, the downfall coming from the midst of the, that's talking about a city, but it can happen to an individual household as well, uh, which is what Haggai 2, uh, 11 following discusses. So all that to say, there is a way to have restitution, and you can always restitute. 
but you may not be able to provide restitution to the person that you need to because either you can't find them, they can't track them down, there's no uh, secondary party who would be a logical choice uh, as described in Numbers 5-7. Uh, at 5.8 it says, if all else is lost and you can't find them, you cannot keep those proceeds because they were ill-gotten gains. And ill-gotten gains fundamentally are you cannot build a good house on wicked proceeds, on, on capitalizing yourself uh, through wickedness. That has to be cleared out. It's one of the reasons that the 30 shekels of silver weren't allowed back into the temple. Oh, that's blood money. We can't have that here. <laughs> of course, the uh, Sanhedrin was responsible for that being blood money in the first place, but that's a whole different story, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, we will eventually have uh, the so-called judges at the city gates again. I believe that Christendom needs to recover the vision of the earlier eras uh, with two provisos. One, do what was right that they had back then, and two, avoid their problems, because we certainly have a litany of issues that were raised when the law was applied partially, as, a, as opposed to a full jot and tittle approach. Whenever the law of God is used, only cherry-picked, an injustice prevails. And that's true for any system, really, but the biblical law is intended to be a jot and tittle, all-or-nothing situation. Uh, and when you fail to provide for all of it being applied, uh, then injustice very easily will creep in. And now you've framed mischief using law, this time using God's law, because the commandments were not used lawfully. Remember that phrase, First Timothy 1.8, the law is good if used lawfully. And so, therefore, a lawful use of the law requires a totality of the law being applied. Therefore, all the provisos and the conditions and the qualifications come into play so that injustice, at least in our created world here, isn't propagated. Another question is, is it wrong to classify any of God's commands as a non-essential part of the law? Non-essentials in quotes. So what we have to understand is that our attitude towards God's law really is a reflection of our attitude towards the lawgiver, with a capital L. It reflects our attitude toward God. And if you think that he authors stupid legislation, you might as well be honest and say so and spit in his eye well, uh, uh, directly instead of hiding under various cloaks. Uh, the reality is that very little of the law of God, uh, I don't think any of it actually, can be regarded as uh, trivial. Uh, it was because of the nature of the author. You know, Matthew Henry even made this comment. He said, you know, given who wrote it, uh, to deprecate uh, or criticize any part of it or say, ah, poo-poo that, we can, we can ignore that, uh, is a big mistake. Now, there's a difference between saying, let's focus on the big stuff and get that right first. Yeah, this is the problem that the Pharisees and scribes came into, right? They were tithing mint and rue and coming and, and doing this little fastidious stuff that was very ostentatious, made them look very holy to the people around about, wow, look at those folks paying so much attention to the little teeny details of God's law. But they neglected the weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faith, which are the core of God's law. And Jesus concludes that condemnation of the spiritual leaders, saying, this ought ye to have done without leaving the others undone. So Jesus didn't say, only worry about justice, mercy, and faith. He said, it's all of a piece. Like James said, if you violate one commandment, you've broken them all. The law of God is a unity, and because it's a unity, to suddenly say these are non-essential parts is a huge problem, because now you are a judge of the law. You're not a doer of the law anymore. You are a judge of the law, and consequently a judge of God. Uh, we've spoken twice, at least, on these Q&As about this fascinating notion of the least commandment. And the notion of the least commandment is introduced in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. 19, where Jesus says, Whosoever shall loosen even the least of these commandments and teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So your standing in the kingdom of heaven is determined not by how spiritual you are, how much you pray, how many people come to your church. It's your attitude toward the least of the commandments, the so-called non-essential ones, uh, in essence, right? And the rabbis have always held that the least commandment was this little thing in Deuteronomy 22, verse 6 and 7 which describes what you do when you uh, encounter a bird's nest on the ground. Now, you don't get too much more trivial than that, at least from our perspective. But this shows a lack of understanding on our part, because God is interested in preserving the species of the bird, even if we're not. And the, the, the birds are there also. To quality. God created them. They're his uh, handiwork. And he basically annexes, or annexes, if you will, a, uh, a promise at the end. It's not just 
Deuteronomy 22.6, it's 22.7, and it says, because uh, you shall, uh, therefore you will have, your days will be long in the land. Now that's huge, because that promise, you know, they, your days will be long in the land, that the Lord gives to thee, uh, is also attached to the, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. So the, there's the first commandment with promise, but the first commandment with promise, which is honor your father and mother, is not the only commandment with promise. The so-called least commandment also has the exact same promise as the first commandment with the promise. So we see then that the unity of the law is uh, proposed at that point. So when we're declaring certain parts of the law, quote-unquote, non-essential, uh, we are judging God. Uh, we believe that we know the mind of Christ, and therefore we can do what Jesus never did, because he commended even the least commandments of God, uh, and told us something profound about them. You know, If you loosen even the least of them, and teach men so. And so what we have a lot of biblical teachers out there, Bible teachers, um, who are promoting the notion that you know, all these parts of God's law are long since gone, we don't have to worry about them, worry about the main stuff, uh, applying notions like make the main thing the main thing. Well, that's fine, but there's more than just the main thing. Remember what I said about the totality of God's law being important? It's because when you don't have the whole picture, uh, you can stumble because all of it's necessary for you to have the full light and the whole counsel of God. I think it's very profound that uh, Paul said, you know, I'm guiltless of the blood of any man because I have not shunned to proclaim unto you the whole counsel of God. He left nothing out, in effect. And that's an important point. The whole counsel of God is important because it deals with everything that God sees as important. It may not be important to us, but if it's important to God, we better make it important to us. Uh, we need to be on the same, or, or, um, not get crosswise with him and be on the wrong side of an issue because uh, if he uh, puts forward a covenant lawsuit against uh, us for our failures, uh, there remains nothing between him and us but a test of strength, to use Van Til's phrase. So, a very dangerous thing to start classifying God's law into essentials and non-essentials, because all of it reflects the purity and holiness of God. And there's nothing unessential about God's basic nature being holy. Let's see, and we have one final question here. Please harmonize. There's always a big challenge, harmonizing something that looks to be an apparent conflict and contradiction. Please harmonize the perspective in the imprecatory psalms with Jesus' command to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute you. So the imprecatory psalms contain passages that reflect um, what David calls a perfect hatred for those who hate God. And I think the only way to grapple with the imprecatory psalms is to understand the holiness of the God who wrote them. Because there's an absolute ideal of perfection required and, uh, by God. And the fact that nobody can achieve it does not let us off the hook. Uh, we know, because we have subsequent revelation, where we will stand. It will be a continual process of sanctification, and it won't conclude until we breathe our last. Uh, and then uh, the sin nature is totally exterminated. But in the meantime, there is a calling. And that calling is, includes the destruction of all evil. Jesus is destroying all the works of the devil. That's asserted plainly in 1 John, third chapter. And uh, we have a part to play in that same process of destroying the works of the devil, exposing, reproving them, and uh, destroying them. Because Jesus is also in the process of having his kingdom move forward uh, in such a way, this is laid out in Hebrews 12, uh, quoting from Haggai 2, and he's shaken all things and laying them in ruins that the kingdom of God might stand, the unshakable kingdom might stand. So everything that's shakable is going to be shaken and destroyed. And we're supposed to be part of that process. We're not supposed to be pulling the opposite direction from that, uh, but rather the, uh, in terms of what God is saying. So, the imprecatory Psalms uphold an absolute ideal uh, uh, ethical standard. Now, two points to be made about that, and the source for this would be Van Til. Van Til wrote an amazing little book, one of the syllabi, uh, called Christian Theistic Ethics, and he has a whole topic about what's called the summum bonum, which is the greatest good. And there's a Christian concept of the greatest good, and it's not Socrates or Aristotle, it's the one laid out in the Old and New Testaments. And it has this aspect of an absolute ideal, and it's a personal ideal. And these are all important points to make. Now, the two provisos are that the process um, always starts with yourself. The first thing, you, first place that you need to root out evil and destroy it is in your own self. You see, 
this prevents us from going into the optical lumbar problem uh, where you have the beam in your own eye and trying to take out the speck from someone else's eye. So the, the, the plan, the, the pr project that we have as Christians in destruction of evil begins with ourselves. Then uh, it is a gradual process and it nowhere states in scripture that use the exact same tool for all cases of evil, rather the right tool for the right job. Different uh, situations call for different approaches uh, for dealing with evil and, and removing it. The fact that we have such strong language for the destruction of evil in the Old Testament simply means that it's upholding that absolute standard. And that absolute standard is not any different in the, uh, the New Testament. Van Til makes reference to that passage in Revelation 6, 9-11, where the uh, saints that have gone before, the disembodied souls of them under the altar, cry out, How long, O Lord, before you avenge us of our, of our enemies? Um, so they're calling for the exact same vengeance as is found in the imprecatory Psalms. You see there's a unity between the Old and New Testaments. So we have to start with ourselves. And then the second proviso is, there is no place for, for personal vengeance in this whole thing. In fact, by applying the whole Old and New Testament together and its doctrine of how the destruction of evil, that's the only way to avoid personal vengeance and its implications and consequences because now it's governed by the law of God. By, uh, you get personal vengeance when there's lawlessness and you neglect the law of God and you do what your, your own thing. and you, uh, um, There's all sorts of examples of this in Old and New Testament where people go off in their own direction and to justify themselves and to vindicate themselves and to get vengeance on others. All of this is, is forbidden. Rather, there's something that is there at the, at the core of, uh, of our being, and we need to be aware of where God is going and what standard He upholds. And it is always an absolute perfect ideal because He's absolute and perfect. Uh, and that's important to know. At no point in this discussion am I pr uh, promoting what's known as perfectionism, that is the notion that Christians, this side of the grave, uh, can be perfect. But you understand that that does not change the goal, an ethical goal. It, it simply points us to the fact that we need to be aware that God has made provision for our weakness uh, and that should redouble our efforts in the same direction. And that might mean, yeah, you're going to be more aware of how far short you fall, the farther you grow in faith and grace, uh, but it, you will always be moving toward that absolute goal. And it's a comfort because God's goals are never temporary. All right, Giorgio asks, It has always been simple, perhaps simplistic, for me to understand that Christ fulfilled the covenant of works Adam failed. Can you clarify Dr. Rishtuni's position on the subject in his systematics? And uh, see, I don't know if I'm going to see the rest of that quote or not. Uh, volume 1, page 376. Well, certainly Dr. Rishtuni differed with the Westminster Confession of Faith on the notion of the covenant of works, which put him on the wrong side of a lot of uh, Presbyterians, because of course he came out of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and uh, to some, the the notion there then is, what do we do with someone who is no longer apparently strict subscriptionist? Because Dr. Rashtuni, his examination of Scripture says there's a flaw in these systematizations, and and he the way he saw it, the flaw is that all. Uh, relationships between an infinite, omnipotent Creator and His creatures are gracious by definition, uh, because they all involve his, the, the condescension of the Creator to the creatures uh, and His graciousness toward them. And so, even if the, even the covenant with Adam has that gracious component in it, and Dr. Rashtuni felt it was improper to um, minimize that. Uh, and he was willing to say some strong words about the Westminster Confession to the effect that it babbled nonsense and things in this order when it comes to some of these points. Uh, he said the same thing about its relatively lukewarm approach to the law of God, and, and so too here. The notion that there was a covenant at all between Adam and, and God uh, is a topic of discussions like about Hosea 6-7, where we had this much disputed translation is it that they like Adam have transgressed the covenant or they like men have transgressed the covenant. Uh, Warfield would be a good place to go for an analysis of where that debate stood uh, at the time that he wrote the turn of the century. So uh, I think it's going to take a century or so before that's going to get sorted out because a lot of folks are simply going to move back into the uh, safety of the creed, the confession, 
and say, oh, Dr. Rashtuni blew it there. Uh, he obviously uh, turned coat, uh, is a turncoat in terms of uh, Presbyterian distinctives. Another pope will promote what Dr. Rashtuni said. He felt the scripture uh, is a primary source for the faith, it's not a secondary uh, uh, doctrine, if you will. Uh, and, and, and that's the problem. Because what happens if, in fact, a confession is out of kilter with the scripture that it propounds or purports to be representing and teaching us in, in a systematic way? And uh, Dr. Rushton, of course, was not afraid to take heat. In fact, he always seemed to be in the kitchen, lived there most of his life. Uh, and most of the prophets in the Old Testament seem to be doing something very similar. Not to equate the two, but to point out that some people are willing to pay a price for what they see as the truth. And it's up to us, uh, following his, in his, not so much in his footsteps, but after him, to determine where was he right and where was he wrong. But I don't think it's going to be a simple thing as, well, the Westminster Confession has the authority to, to declare Dr. Rishtuni wrong. This must be determined scripturally. And therefore, all those uh, scripture proof texts have to be reopened and reexamined. And a lot of folks are going to find a lot more heat than light in, in doing that. That's, that's regrettable. So far, uh, we have that famous phrase, what more need have we of witnesses? He already went against the confession, right? What more we need have we of witnesses for Jesus at this trial? He already said enough to condemn him. So, same, same problem. Same problem, a uh, different person. Okay, there was a question I just scrolled up, let me see, from uh, Subusiso Roberts. Evening, Mr. Martin. What is the role of a Christian in this democracy in the world? I am from South Africa, and we are very vulnerable and are affected what happens in the world, the United States and the United Kingdom. Let's see if there's more I can get. And I can't see the rest of it. But I get the gist of the question. We uh, obviously are in the world, but not of the world. And I think the uh, thing, a point I've been pounding for the last six or seven Q&As is the following that the solution is always going to be start with Christian self-government. By the way, Christian self-government is one of the ways in which you're destroying evil in yourself, isn't it? Because instead of uh, defaulting to the state being the source of solutions which violate scripture, you're undertaking to do what's right that God requires you to do. And this is what the essence of faith is, to do what God requires, even if the world laughs at you, even if the world uh, says what you're doing is irrelevant and not going to make a single drop a difference. Now here you have God coming in and saying, by the way, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So if it's in the Lord, it doesn't matter if the world says it's not going to count. It counts for nothing. God says it counts, and it counts big time, uh, because God's behind it. And we've told you over and over again some of these messages, given examples from the scripture, from the Bible, where just the mere fact of going out and doing the right thing, God lifts his curses. And sometimes he lifts the curses on a whole nation for the sake of the Christians that are in it. This is kind of the point that John Owen makes in his exposition of uh, Isaiah 4, verse 5. Upon all the glory shall be a defense. A fascinating passage, and there's a lot to be said about it. And he points out that the, the glory of a nation are the Christians that are in it. And their actions in self-governance and applying the law of God uh, and spreading the gospel, the kingdom news, uh, all these things uh, protect the nation and when a nation attacks its own Christians and tries to undermine them, it is essentially pulling its house down on itself like a foolish woman does. So the worst thing that a nation can do is attack its own Christian population because upon all the glory is defense. And so what little hope a nation might have is the presence of the Christians in it. And we can see what happened when Lot disappeared from Simon and Gomorrah. Uh, there was nothing left to hold the place together. So, uh, the role of a Christian is, one, to be a Christian and to apply the entire Word of God to everything that's under his uh, scope and control. So that when he uh, governs himself through, under, through Scripture, he's teaching his children in the faith, he's, he's uh, um, educating them in the Word of God, and then he applies the various social aspects of the law of God uh, in respect to the poor tithe, uh, things in this order. Uh, there's a whole all sorts of things start in debt, because all these nations that we're talking about are premised on uh, abominations for money. But the Christians now getting out of debt, uh, they're contributing to the good of the society, and it also gives folks a willingness to talk to them. For example, there's a fascinating um, prediction in Scripture about how ten people will take the skirt of a Jew and say, we want to go with you because we hear God's with you. 
Well, it's a pretty profound thing. I actually uh, illustrated this in a uh, Bible study one time. I had uh, 10 children grab the 11th child uh, on the shirt, and it was quite a view to see all these people grabbing, just to so, so people get in their eyes uh, and, and see visually what is pictured in that passage. I think it might have been in Zechariah, where they grab a hold of the, the man's skirt and say, you know, you got the word of God. We want to go with you. And so it will be. There will be this pull, and I talked about this pull, this magnetic pull, uh, toward the law of God that's described in Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. You know, uh, come, let's go up. They invite each other to be where, to go where the law of God is being propagated, for the law of God is going forth from Jerusalem. Let's go there. <laughs> so the law of God, far from driving people away, we're at a point where people are interested to hear it because it provides answers. And uh, the Christians are unaware lots of times that the God, law of God has provided important answers to things. I keep reiterating the same point. I think of the last six messages, five times on these Q&As, I brought up the question of the poor tithe because here's a solution to a major welfare crisis. And it is laid out in Scripture and it historically worked. What does that mean? Because there was a time in Israel's history where they had no more poor because they were actually following this law. It occurred after the return from Babylon during the Maccabean era, circa 168 BC, and they had a surplus. That's recorded in the second uh, book of Maccabees, uh, chapter 3. And there it is reported how much surplus they had at the temple because they had no poor people to give the money to. Uh, everyone had been lifted out of poverty. And this is a promise of God in Deuteronomy 15.4. So if you keep this law of mine, you shall have no more poor among you. Why is it that Jesus is talking about, look, you have poor among you again? Well, that's because they stopped keeping the law. So when the law of God is kept, good things happen. And they happen less expensively, too. Because 3.3% uh, uh, of your net increase is all that's required to ex exterminate, get rid of poverty in your society. 100%. It happened in Israel. It can happen anywhere that God's law is going to be honored. But we spend four and a half times that amount and still have rampant growing poverty because uh, it's not God's way, one. Two, the state always is a middleman, and so you're paying for this enormous bureaucratic system, and it's impersonal and it's institutional. Whereas in the Bible, God's very personal, and the giving of the poor tithe is a personal act, eye to eye, and it increases and improves community between people. Uh, so there's all sorts of social benefits, uh, not that we measure the love of God by it, but we get out of it, but rather the fact is God is good and his law is good and consequently uh, their effects of applying it are very, very good and a society now is straight with God and God's blessings then come upon it. Again, now we activate those wonderful blessings of Psalm 1. It blesses the man who delights in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Presupposes he's not just a reader of the word, he's also a doer of the word. Uh, someone who's meditating on it day and night presumably is applying it. Uh, our failure is that we're not meditating on it, let alone applying it, and rarely do we read it. And this goes with this famous bait-and-switch I've discussed over and over again in the last 10 years of lectures uh, from various um, pulpits and lecterns, that what happens is that people read Psalm 1, often in a, say, a dispensational setting, and boom, what happens, they'll say, instead of saying the law of God, they'll say the word of God. Blessed is the man who... Uh, delights in the Word of God, and in his word he meditates, and then he flip forward the Bible to the New Testament and say, well, here's where you get your blessings. Except that David, when he wrote Psalm 1, was talking about the Old Testament law. He was talking about Moses. He was pointing backward to the Mosaic law. Delight in this, and you'll be blessed. So there are blessings that come from the law of God, and they're put up at the very front of the Psalter for a reason. And the fact that we would take something at the beginning of God's Psalter and mutilate its meaning so completely so as to cast it in an antinomian way and point people to people to the New Testament and neglect the Old, as usually we tell folks, regrettably, uh, don't bother with the Old Testament. The important stuff's in the New. Well, then that means goodbye to the blessings of Psalm 1. And once you say goodbye to the blessings, some of those uh, other things... Uh, happen to you too. You're going to start walking in the counsel of the ungodly, and that happens all the time nowadays, because the neglect of God's law, which is necessary for us to have, be fully equipped and have the whole counsel and not be guilty of the blood of any man, when we lack that, we have no tools. We have lost our defenses, and consequently, um, there is no more safety to be had.
I think there might be some more questions. Let me scroll up. Oops. Oh, here we go. How do we position it? Okay. Well, position yourself, I think, is a, a good point. Uh, and I think I, I pointed that out. The You should not suffer as an evildoer. That's, 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 that's a very important point, because you don't want to have the Gentiles blaspheme in the name of God because of your conduct. So if you see yourself as an ambassador and administer reconciliation to it, that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that's from Second Corinthians 5, 17 to 20, uh, then that's an important task. You need to be part of the reconciliation process between God and man. And, and to promote that, you begin with Christian self-government, and the law of God is a tool that directs you, and in the Spirit and in, in, under God's grace, He gives you the strength to apply it in your own heart and then move forward from there. So your family is a beacon on a hill, a light on a hill. You become the salt and the light of that structure there. Yeah, get a sip of water here. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. Sean asks, Sean Anselmo, is very disturbing to see that the, the neo-recon movement has embraced the charismata. What are your thoughts on this trend? Uh, I guess I can only give you my personal view on uh, the charismatic gifts. I hope for the sake of those folks who, and the churches that uh, promote them, that they're wrong. Because if they're right that those gifts are legitimately from the Holy Spirit, they're abusing them terribly and will be called to account for it and pay a very, very heavy price. You see, the, law, the Word of God in the New Testament gives rules for the uh, regulation of the charismata, and those are routinely neglected. You know, no one's supposed to um, speak in tongues in the church unless there's an interpreter. And if there's no interpreter, they're going to remain silent. But we have whole churches you know, doing all their tongue speaking all they want. So uh, this is confusion, and God's not the author of it. So if it's a real gift, they're abusing it, and that's a, I, that's a very, very serious thing to take a gift of God, and then when God says, use it this way, and we use it the opposite way that he requ uh, commanded, that's huge. Second thing is that uh, Paul made a point, better to say five words that are understood than you know, 10,000 that are not. We're getting this 10,000 words that are not understood with tongues and not saying the five that are, can be understood. Uh, it's not that those folks can't do any better than that. But in saying this, then, Paul also sets another principle in effect, right? He actually says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. The least of the gifts is tongues. So it's not the one you should be desiring. <laughs> you should be desiring the gifts that actually can edify other folks. So, uh, in effect, tongues speaking is the consolation prize among the charismata. It's not a wonderful thing to have. It's, it's the, when you get nothing else. Uh, that means you're not... So you get the point. And Paul had an authority to say these things about tongues because I speak tongues more than anybody. So I got street cred on tongues, he's saying. And consequently, when I say these things anti-tongue, uh, pointing out where it needs to be and where, what its purpose is, and that you're not to seek that gift because it's the least of the gifts. You want to seek rather the greatest gifts, the, you know, the, the teaching and edifying gifts, uh, and application of scripture, which I believe what prophecy is, uh, to things, uh, that comes into play. So I think there's a whole issue regarding the charismata. Dr. Rushduni knew this about the charismatics. He said they do not uh, despair of the power of the Holy Spirit to convert the world. And that's big because there was an openness to the power of God, the omnipotent power of God in the salvation process, the election process. Uh, and that's why he was able to work with many of them. Did not mean that he became anything, uh, any less a cessationist. He was certainly had the same concerns, I imagine, that, that I had concerning the disruptions in church and the disruptions in fellowship and the spiritual aristocracy that supposedly is built around some of these charismata. And they're not based on what makes you great in the kingdom of heaven, which is the law of God, your attitude towards the least commandments, Matthew 5.19. So it's not how many tongues you can speak and how often you can do it and, and conjure up that least a gift, and I'm going to keep calling it that. Uh, 
it matters that you have the higher gifts and these apply to the law of God being propagated. So, uh, interesting mix when you have both together, if both are together. Uh, and so I reserve the right, like Gamaliel said, if it's of God, no one's going to stop it. But if it's of God, God's going to judge it because it's abused. Okay, see if there's any other questions. What role, this is Gary Morris, what role should the family play in Christian entrepreneurial endeavors? You know, that's a very interesting point because uh, in the Old Testament, clearly the family uh, owned a plot of ground and it was where they did their um, the plowing and the harvesting. And the entire premise of their economics was, was family-centered. Nowadays, that is a little bit less clear because uh, technology has shortened all sorts of uh, uh, paths, transportation, communication, the ability to move goods over long distances uh, has created what Dr. Gary North would call a division of labor that was not manifest so clearly back in Genesis when the notion was first put out in Genesis 4 concerning division of labor. One guy's the maker of metals, one guy makes musical instruments, one guy does such and so. Uh, so too, but the family I think is a great place as a, um, a womb, if you will, for entrepreneurialism. Uh, you want to equip your children uh, so that they are prepared with the love of God to apply it to anything. And that includes the capitalization process. And they are to be doing all things for the good of the kingdom of God. If they're putting the kingdom of God first, right, Matthew 6, 33, uh, seeking it first, then that, uh, that aspect of being productive with their hands, God gives them strength in their fingers to make wealth. It's that great promise from the law of God. Uh, boom, we're moving forward in terms of that. And so the family has a role. Now, does that mean that son, the third son doesn't say, I want to go become such and so in another area? He's, he has a calling. may not be in, you cannot, I think, bind him and saying you're stuck with the family. You have to be with the family business or else. In fact, a lot of conflict in <laughs> a lot of 20th century movies where the family's under attack has to do with folks don't want to be part of the family business anymore. And the family business gets on hard times and collapses. And a lot of those are farms, of course, and or shoe factor, shoemakers and things of this order. Because sometimes uh, parents want something better for their children than they themselves had. And if they conceived that they can do better than being a shoemaker or a farmer, maybe they are okay with the children moving into a different area. But other times, this land has been in our family for five generations and was sacrifi we sacrificed and sweated in blood here. How could you possibly think about leaving? So the, the child is guilt-tripped into being part of that. I think the child has to, on its own, on his own merit, see the value of it, and that is not done again with a push. It's done with a pull, for them to see the value in the family business. And once they see it, uh, and it's and, and it's part of what the, the skill sets that God has uh, blessed that child with, they will see it through. And if not, they they will move in a different direction. And I would hope that the God, parents give them Godspeed, because we don't know if they're going to go in a different direction than than we are. It might be our wishes that uh, family farms stay intact. And I have something to say about those family farms. If you go back to some of those easy chair tapes that Dr. Rishtani did starting in the 80s, etc., there's a discussion about a um, federal program. They noted that they had 3 million family farms out there, and they said, we need to reduce this number to 1 million. So there's a concerted effort by the federal government to essentially reduce the number of farms from 3 million to 1 million which means two million families are going to be put out. So it's not just that the family farm is under attack <laughs> from from within because children say, I want to be a software programmer. I want to um, design cars or whatever they want to do. Uh, it's that there was a, the government itself put pressure to take the family farms uh, out, of the, out of the way because uh, in the name of efficiency. Now, who said it was the federal government's job to do any of that? It was a complete overreach. So we might not have been in such a bad situation uh, with a cent massive centralization of all the farms, uh, which I think has been a disaster for America. You can point all you want to, oh, look at the yields have improved, but you have no idea what the yields would have been if God had two million faithful families out there still maintaining their farms. I, mean, I would have had triple the productivity, you see that? You're arguing from silence. So the blessings of God, uh, you, you cannot compare them to the blessings of humanism. So, let's see if there's any other question. I'll roll back. Okay. Andrea Schwartz, do you agree that all Christians should manifest all the fruits of the Spirit rather than claiming only some? 
Well, it would be uh, unfortunate if someone, well, claiming, it's an interesting point, claiming the fruits of the Spirit, or manifesting, okay, manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. I think we're called to manifest all of them, uh, because I think they're, those are all the things that the Spirit awakens in us when we, once we were dead, now we're alive. And the point of the Holy Spirit is to quicken us to the entire Word of God, which in applying it brings all those fruit uh, to life that are listed out in the New Testament. And certainly, uh, if you look at every one of those fruits, and I look them up in the Old Testament, you'll see there's nothing new about them. They can be had also in the Old Testament setting. So uh, I think it's important to, to regard that uh, the fruits of the Spirit are all to be there if you have three and not any of the others. There might be some serious doubt as to your Christianity, at least it's kind of warped at that point. Uh, and I think that, that that's an error. That's an error to, to... It's like saying, I want some of God's blessings, but not all of it. Uh, and oftentimes, all we're doing, in essence, is justifying a character weakness on our own part. You know, impatience might be a problem for us. And therefore, uh, we say, well, we don't have that gift. No, you're not interested in the gift. And it's part of that big chain in James, so everything else on the next downside of that chain isn't going to come to play either if patience isn't uh, in your character set. And character can be uh, learned. It's acquired over time. Uh, it becomes character because it's put to the test. And God will test us in ways that our parents can. The point of the parent is to test the child to inculcate the values uh, and those fruit to the spirit. Uh, and that's important. So uh, I don't think we should pick and choose. It's not a smorgasbord any more than the Word of God is a smorgasbord, any more than the Law of God is a smorgasbord where you pick and choose what you want to obey or what you want to promote. Now, that said, uh, some folks might be gifted, now we're talking about the gifts, say, in First Corinthians 12, in a different way. Uh, someone might have a tremendous amount of empathy in Therefore, have the gift of helps, as they say. Come alongside their brothers in a tough time. Immediately, they can sense something's wrong, and, and God has attuned them to things that others might miss. And so God uses these because we're not all eye, we're not all ear, or not all nose. Uh, and, and that's important to realize there's a diversity of gifts so that the, uh, God's church, the body, is uh, fully supplied everywhere. And that way, we lack for nothing. So there can be emphasis. We might be stronger in one area than the other. No one says that everyone's got all the gifts equally at the full 100% firing cylinder, all cylinders firing. But they're all present and need to be present because to the point that if any of them is absolutely missing, then that means the Holy Spirit isn't at work in you because they are the gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your heart. It's part of the process of being converted from a stony heart to a heart of flesh. Heart of flesh manifests various degrees the fruit of the Spirit. Let's see what else we have. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it could be. Um, and then Jill Judd asks, is it not just one fruit, the fruit of the Spirit? That's an interesting question. We can certainly uh, determine whether that is a, call a collective noun or if it's a singular noun. I can certainly double-check that and see the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and it could be that these are what's called manifold fruit, right? Because there's a notion in Scripture about the manifold wisdom of God. Is there one wisdom of God? Yes. God doesn't have different wisdoms. There's no wisdom tooth and a wisdom foot or anything like that. It's it's a single singular wisdom for God. But there's a notion of the manifest wisdom of God. This was in Ephesians 3, I think, 16. Uh, and I, we spoke about this once before, too. It means that the wisdom of God as it plays out in the in the world that he created uh, shows all sorts of facets and aspects to it. In other words, it is a complicated fullness that is there. It is not a narrow, uh, um, crabbed-up kind of wisdom. It is a uh, wisdom in its completeness. And so it could be that it's a man the manifold fruit of the, the, the Spirit could be the gist. But I can d double check that. I have some of the resources here in my library that can uh, confirm that, Jill. So I'll see and double check that. Which is a good point because if it is a, a even if it is a collective noun, uh, it points that all of those comprised are like the the fruit, a singular fruit, if you will. Uh, this kind of plays out uh, with some other aspects. For example, 
when the, Jesus speaks about the two great commandments, he says, upon all these two hang on the law and the prophets. They're connected to them. So all the 613 laws of God and the various prophetic covenant lawsuits are premised on those two. They're an aspect of either loving God as yourself, or rather loving God, <laughs> loving God with all your heart, all your spirit, and all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So too, the fruit all are of, of a piece. They're connected together uh, in the spirit who is the author of them. So I'll um, probably give you uh, an aspect. By the way, we talked earliest in our discussion here about the absolute standard that is set forth and even reflected in those imprecatory psalms, about an absolute ethical standard. Do you know we just touched on a very verse that speaks to that? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your spirit, and all your mind, all your strength. That's absolute. You see, the Old Testament nails it, and then Jesus reiterates it. So there is one absolute ideal that we are to drive for. You cannot set it aside. You can't excuse yourself. Okay. Rashtuni says the dominion mandate is to the family rather than church or state. Can you flesh this out? Uh, primarily because the reason that this is so is that the Adam and Eve were the ones to whom it was given. It was given to a family. It wasn't given to a state or a church. Most folks, particularly in Presbyterian circles, will not say the church didn't exist until Ab Abraham's time, when it was called out of the darkness, if you will. So the church as such is, um, at least as we understand it today, in its uh, pre-New Testament form, would only go back as far as Abraham. And, uh, there, and in the New Testament itself ties us all back to the being children of Abraham when you're in Christ and in the church. So uh, certainly we're all the... Uh, sons of Adam and Eve too, but not in the church sense. So the church didn't exist at the time that Genesis 1, 26, 28 was commanded the family. The two of them were commanded to exercise the dominion mandate. So it is a mistake to place it in the church because the church didn't even exist yet. And it's a mistake to place it in the state because the state didn't exist yet either for that matter. And the state actually has a proscribed region, which is the execution of justice after all of God's law has been fulfilled. It executes the sword. And it doesn't need, you don't need a lot of cash to do that, to pull that off. Uh, it's that poll tax, the head tax of Scripture that uh, governs and, and gives us the amount of capital necessary to run your civil government. It's a very teeny amount. Half a shekel of silver per male head of uh, male citizen, 20 years and up. I computed this out for America a few years ago. It was $528 million for the entire country. So it's 11,000 times smaller than the amount of we're paying for all our governments. And Dr. Rushduni actually points out, and I think it's in Tithing and Dominion, that there is in fact a, a, a nation that operated using a small nation, mind you, uh, we want to make a principality, but in France there was a, uh, a region of France that was governed under that poll tax. So for po folks that say, long dead, never worked, never will, you're wrong. Uh, there's a case in, uh, of a nation that, and this was certainly near the time, I think, if memory serves, uh, near Alfred the Great's reign in England, over here in France, is a region of France being governed under the poll tax of Exodus 30. So there's amazing things can be done, and you can run your nation that way, and it can, and now the important point, again, remember I said you have to apply the whole law of God, is that you must obey the law of God inside the nation for God to be your defense, your shield, your refuge, right? Upon all the glory shall be a defense. And there's that phrase in Leviticus 19, you know, if you keep these laws, then the sword shall not go through your land. You will not have invaders attacking you. God will put a hedge up, a protection around any nation where they obeying God's laws. So you can't just say, let's just... Uh, uh, pay, pay the head tax, but keep breaking God's law, because now you're going to be open to attack. Now, you're still open to attack, spending billions and trillions on defense, because since it's not God's way, it's a sieve full of holes, and still things can get through. And, and we talked about this at the very first Q&A when we started this uh, little audio video series back in uh, June. Let's see what we have here. Giorgio asks again another question. How or on what should one capitalize his family in a country like the one I live in, Italy, which seems fully under God's judgment? Taxes are up to 80%, and the government has set itself to be the final heir. 
Well, that final error part is particularly bad because now the family is being decapitalized on purpose, uh, which is wickedness compounded exponentially, isn't it? Uh, back when the, um, in the 80s, when Dr. Rashtuni was discussing taxation in Italy, he pointed out that the taxes on the books actually exceeded 110%, and it was only the inefficiency of the Italian bureaucracy that made it impossible for it to attempt to the impossible, which is to collect more than you made. <laughs> so uh, it's because the government is, is uh, a false god and is acting exactly as that. So now you have a, a compounded problem because they're doing everything in their power to make Christian self-government impossible. So, and I'm at a loss for words because it's such a grievous situation, uh, and they're not, it's not the only place where this happens, of course, but where the taxation is so high and the inheritance tax is 100%. Uh, I just saw crossing my uh, Facebook feed that I think The Guardian proposed a 100% inheritance tax to cover all welfare. Um, said, we can pay for welfare if we have 100% inheritance tax. So we just uh, snip the umbilical cord between parents and their children. The children are just cut off from any of the capital that they, their parents accumulated. And boom, we'll get turned over to welfare. Now, I've already told you where the Bible gives you the answer to the welfare problem in Deuteronomy 14, the poor tithe, and it's 3.3% of your increase. And that's annual and annuitized, as they say, amortized over the course of a year. And so instead, because they're so inefficient, they're going to give that money, of course, to the government, to the bureaucracy. So you have this massive beast-like state growing in Italy, uh, and it's going to, and eventually, going to, it's going to collapse because these things collapse with themselves. So the question is, in the meantime, while it's not collapsed and still trying to collect, what do you do? I think you have a, a very, very rough situation. There in Italy, uh, you must do the absolute best that you can, uh, following God's law as far as you possibly can, given the evils, and find out if there's ways to protect those assets which belong not to the state when you die and pass them on to your children. They belong to your children, uh, to your godly children, more specifically, because you capitalize the godly seed. You don't capitalize the ungodly state, and the state's now, by demanding it at the point of the sword, right, by, by expropriation. And all states eventually devolve into this because uh, their currencies are already fouled up. They're going to end up like a, a Greece or a Cyprus at the rate they're going. So, shy of departing Italy, you try to reconstruct where you are. And that's a difficult thing. Perhaps, uh, Giorgio, we're uh, Facebook friends. Uh, let's, let want you communicate with me by IM, it's Messenger, and we can, uh, I can see if I can get you hooked up with some other folks that could potentially uh, aggregate some solutions over there. Uh, I don't think they're going to be political solutions. Uh, I think politics is the wrong place to look for the answers. They're going to be at the family level and families uh, and accumulating more families with moral courage. You see, the problem is everyone's used to the government doing these things, uh, but eventually the government, you turn on the government. And Mussolini's corpse was not treated well uh, at the end. Uh, eventually, the Italians realized that they were fed a bill of goods. But in the meantime, if they're on the take themselves, and that's the problem if you're a beneficiary of uh, the state, uh, you're going to be inclined to have an entitlement mentality, and you will not capitalize the future, and you'll resent others, Christians, who are capitalizing their futures. You're going to want to take them down. So you have a very negative situation there. Some complain that Rush was weak on the church. Comment or comments. I think what they mean by that is not that he was weak in his condemnation of the church, because <laughs> he was pretty strong on, on that, because he saw the church as, uh, by and large, not there are wonderful exceptions, mind you, as the church as essentially selling out Christ and selling out God uh, left and right, you know, massive compromises. Um, and in a wicked way. If you look at the history of the publication of Christianity Today and the way they handled Dr. Rashtuni, uh, they wanted to black, they wanted a blackout against him. Uh, it's a dangerous thing. Also, it's, uh, this came across um, my understanding here. I was just looking at the Wikipedia article on General William Booth this last week, 
founder of the Salvation Army, and then in it there's a fascinating little squib, and I said I posted it on uh, a couple of websites, uh, several Facebook threads. I said it's interesting. It says <clears throat> D.L. Moody uh, refused to support General Booth because he saw a threat to the local church. Now this is huge. I mean, now you can see the problem. Rushdoony supports what General William Booth was doing because he was applying the faith in ways that nobody else was willing to do. And he was solving problems, huge evil problems in the society that the church was leaving undone, was not attending to. Like I always say, you don't need a parachurch ministry if the church is doing its job. But if the church and the people in the church are not equipped because their pastors are not interested in these, solving these problems, then the parachurch ministry comes in. And what does the church do? That's a threat to the local church. And that's what Moody did. So the same thing is happening over and over again. Whenever Christian Reconstruction takes hold of human hearts and people say, I want to uh, take more thought counter to the obedience of Christ. I want to apply the law of God. I want to be salt. All of a sudden, this is seen as a threat to the local church. So if we're talking about Russia's weakening on the weak on the church, we certainly don't mean weak in his criticism and trying to call it to its higher thing. What they really mean is he's weak on uh, the thing, on playing church, if you will. Now, I've used a rather strong way um, it was called by one pastor I knew, a holy piddling. There's a, and that's unfortunate because there's certainly things that the church does that are important and valuable, and they're called by God to do it, and they are in the church to do, uh, in the world to do these things. But what happens when the church goes with half a loaf instead of the entire council of God? It's now culpable, and so for it to call its reformers to, to account uh, is wrong uh, on the part of the church. And Dr. Rushdoony was not going to get caught up into discussions of liturgy and all these other things. He thought those were all well and good if we're applying the law of God. You know, we can have all this variety and can have all this discussion about the proper uh, posture of the recipients at the Lord's Supper and uh, whether or not there should be instruments and uh, exclusive psalmody. He said all these issues uh, are, are dangerous because the law of God is a unity. And what has happened when the law of God is not treated as a unity, we have folks saying the following. We need to get the first table of the law right before we worry about the second table of the law. And this was a, kind of a, a battle cry for a move away from Christian Reconstruction, saying, yeah, Christian Reconstruction, that's, that's a kindergartner for, for us. Kindergarten for us. We've moved on and we've realized the importance of the first table of the law. Get worship right. Then we can worry about our fellow man. If anything, the book of James, or rather John, I think, puts it the other way, right? Both those books deal with this issue, but how can you love God who you haven't seen if you're not loving your fellow man who you have seen, your neighbor, uh, your brother? So there's a point in which dealing with your fellow man is a good test for uh, dealing with God. If you're not going to honor your father and mother, you're going to have a hard time honoring God, right? So it's not either or. It's not first table or second table. It's all the parts of the law of, God, law of God. That's why we keep saying we're talking about a form of totalism, not using in the pejorative sense of tyrannical mind control, which some the word has drifted in meaning to mean that in certain circles, uh, but rather totalism in the sense that uh, the entirety of God's law was intended to be applied as a whole and not sliced up and pieced up and say, this is the important part. It almost dovetails with an earlier question in this Q&A, right? But are there any unessential, non-essential parts? By saying that, we're saying certain parts are, are more important and we can neglect certain things, and it's safe to neglect them. It's not safe to neglect any part of God's law. And we pointed this out over and over again in these Q&As, coming back circle, full circle again. Israel thought for sure that they could get away with a, a violating the land Sabbath, and uh, after 490 years, God had his fill of their of wickedness, and he said, my land shall enjoy her Sabbaths, you're going to exile you to Babylon, and the land will lie fallow for 70 years, for the 70 missed Sabbaths that you inflicted upon it and refused to let my land rest. You just worked it to death. So out you go. So the law of God is a unity, and when the law of God is seen as a unity, then uh, we don't make this distinction that the church things are more important and say, this, the social things. See, if the social gospel was under Rauschenbach and the others at the turn of the 20th century was evacuated of all Christian content, no Christian, no Christ, no atonement, it was just literally social. It had no, no, no concept of, of God's law being applied. It was just do good to our fellow man and uh, have just a general Christ-like spirit about it. Um, Christ is an example, washing feet and things like that. We'll, we'll, 
glom onto those things, not the other things that Christ said, but things that are comfortable for us to, to deal with, to justify social action, and then to make the state responsible for it. Because in Scripture, the individuals are responsible for that social action. The state is not. And the church's deaconate, diaconate is responsible too, to a level, and this is laid out in the book in his service uh, by Rashtuni, where he speaks to the diaconate. So, and I think Rashtuni is not so much weak on the church as he's strong on the totality of the law of God, and it's interpreted as weak on the church because he does not share an emphasis that takes one part of the law and puts it up above the other, it takes the first table and the worship issues and puts them above the things related to our fellow man, uh, whereby we don't steal, we don't you know, uh, kill, we don't uh, besmirch their names, we don't covet their property, we don't commit adultery with their wives and things of that sort. We protect our fellow man, because on these two hang the, all along the prophets, right? And in, remember, Jesus said, the second commandment is like unto the first. And he is basically putting them almost at level. The only difference is that if there had to be a choice between obeying God and man, Acts 5.29 comes in, you obey but if it's not a choice, then you need to do both. Uh, you need to be in, in tune with all these things. Looks like, oh, looks like um, triple fire. I like that symbol. Oh, good. We have this thing in a service. So it looks like um, my technical manager is letting us know we've come into a logical break in this nonstop discussion. Appreciate all the questions. Uh, she'll let me know if there are any that I missed, and she'll forward them to me. And any questions that pop up on the website, well, like I say, we'll take those first at the beginning of these sessions, as I did three from the website and one that was uh, rolled over from last week. Uh, we don't want to miss any questions. So appreciate them all. Appreciate everyone. Uh, and I, let's all pray for Giorgio over in uh, Italy, considering the situation that they have there, uh, and because we're going to find ourselves facing a very similar situation in the United States. Don't say, begin to say to yourself, I'm glad I'm not in that guy's shoes because you, you, that's exactly where our, our government is going to go given all the trends at the current time. So it's only the grace of God that has slowed down the progress here and it may not last forever. So let's start with where we can be effective, which is in our own families, and work forward from there. God, your labor is never in vain in the Lord. Hold on to that truth. It's the key to everything. We'll see you all next week. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.